Now, where we started many, 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 many months ago was we said, we're going to take a little turn in what we've been talking about here at Wildwood. And we're going to be intentional about saying this to us as a people. It is time for many of us to get after it in our spiritual pilgrimage. Many of you have been getting after it for years. And what I would say to you is this, keep going. Some of us have not. We've been faithful to come to church and to listen, and, and, and we, we don't desire, our, um, we don't uh, tend to uh, pursue things that are overtly evil, etc. We just have never really had a passionate pursuit of the person of Jesus. And so many, many months ago, we said, and um, uh, our officers, uh, staff, etc., we said, man, let's challenge our folks. And so we began that looking at Romans chapter 12 and talking about laying ourselves up on an altar out there. We've continued on with some series, but I want to tell you right here, right now, this may be the culmination of many of these things, many of these weeks leading up in, in many ways to this message right here. It's not because this message is going to be that spectacular. It's because the content of what's here. See, we're looking at Daniel, and Daniel ultimately is the story of God's sovereignty. Even though things may look like God is not in control, God is always in control. And even though it may not look like he is working and maneuvering and manufacturing and doing what he's trying to accomplish his will, he always is doing that. We can always take confidence that God is always working. Daniel here, once again, we'll, we'll see it in every single chapter, but here in the sixth chapter, we're going to have a narrative once again of how it looks as though God's people may be thwarted. But remember the promise of Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what I want to invite us all to today is this. Look at Daniel, not necessarily through the lens of just this particular individual in time and space who lived and who did some pretty incredible things. Look at this as just a child of God in God's kingdom and whom God raises up and he uses for his purposes. We'll see that. If you have the ability and you can, would you stand as we read just the first 10 verses of Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over, the, uh, over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in, in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and Zatreps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You may be seated. This is the last week in this particular series that we're preaching on and looking at a little bit of a character study, but also just as the book of a whole. Dare I say that in today's culture, it is my opinion, my opinion, not to be shared necessarily by everyone. In our culture today, we are obsessed with safety. We want everything and everyone at all times to be safe. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Safety is, in fact, a good thing. If I were to say safety is not a good thing, you should have concern about my mental stability. Safety, by and large, is a good thing that should be pursued within reason. However, we cannot make the world a safe world all the time. And do you know why? Because years ago, in a garden... A guy and a girl took some fruit and they ate it and had devastating consequences and it removed the possibility that no one would ever be hurt. People are going to get hurt. Your kids are going to get hurt. And it is a natural instinct of every parent to want to try and protect the child as much as we possibly can. When they're younger, we prevent them from doing things like sticking their fingers into sockets. That's a good thing. We prevent them from putting their hand into fire. That's a good thing. It's good to protect our kids. However, everyone knows, don't you, at some point, you have to let your kid get burned a little bit. Because otherwise, they're never going to learn on their own. So on one level, protecting them from everything is actually harmful in the long run. But what I'm talking about, this obsession with safety, is that we want everyone to be safe at all times, emotionally, and so we, these safe spaces that we create, again, I'm not, I'm, I promise you I'm not condescending in this. I'm saying that it's an effort that is just simply not attainable. Can I tell you, biblically speaking, God's highest priority has never been the safety of his children. Never. Is it a priority for him? Absolutely. And the one thing that he wants to keep his children safe from is eternal condemnation. So he goes to great lengths to ensure that his children can be protected for all of eternity from that. However, from the bumps and the bruises and the hurts in life, if we think and we're going to judge God's goodness based on how much he protects us, we're going to see him as an ogre. Daniel, right here, is given some information. Notice it says it pleased Darius. First thing here is to notice this name, Darius. I won't spend much time on this, but throughout history, we have looked and tried to find whoever this person is named Darius, and we just simply can't find him. We don't know and don't have a record of someone named Darius who is a ruler in this day and age. And so many of the skeptics and critics will say, see, the Bible is untrue in what it says. And I would say, not so fast. There are many possible 
uh, uh, explanations uh, for this. For years and years, we didn't know that there was this guy named Belshazzar. Critics said, hey, w- w- this guy, it's, it's, re- it's reason here in which this, the scriptures are untrue. Well, later on, we didn't, had digs and archaeological discoveries. And we found out, no, there is this dude that's named that. Here's what I think is the most likely scenario. It is either Cyrus himself that it's referring to, or it's someone who would be a governor um, there in, in one of those places. Either way is fine. It's a, it's a reasonable explanation. I am not particularly concerned that we can't find a historical record on a guy named Darius. Darius says it pleases him to set over the kingdom 120 satraps throughout the whole kingdom. Satrap is a word that means protector of the kingdom. These are folks that are designed to set up and to govern and to rule. Right now what we see is the organizing that is taking place within this kingdom. Organization is a good thing. So they go about organizing in such a way. Now, here's what happens. It says that in this organization that Daniel rises to the top, it says he becomes distinguished above all the others, and it's because he has an excellent spirit within him. Now, what does an excellent spirit mean? It could mean it has to do with his attitude. It could mean his abilities. Um, it could mean, but I think, in essence, what it is is because the, the, the spirit of God was upon him and had anointed him, and because Daniel had set the direction of his life in a Godward direction, God guided and leaded and directed in such a manner that he just was prosperous in everything he did. In the same way that God did that with Joseph, it is not a guarantee that because someone sets the direction of their, uh, their, of their life towards God, God is always going to prosper them in the same way that he does Daniel and Joseph and others in the scriptures. But he will always prosper his people internally. He will always prosper those who set their hearts towards him and pursue him. He always prospers them with this inner desire, this growing hunger and thirst for righteousness, this peace, this contentment, joy, love, etc. External? Maybe. Internal? Yeah, you can count on that. So Daniel has this excellent spirit. He rises up to the top. And as would happen in many other times, folks get jealous of how good he is. And so then they come up with this plan. And the plan is, hey, let's trap him. Let's get all the researchers together and let's find out and dig up all the dirt in his past. So let's look at the skeletons in his closet. And so they spend time and money and effort and energy. And they come back and they say, there is nothing. This dude is a Boy Scout. We got nothing on this guy. We cannot find anything that would, that would be worth bringing up to the king. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that Daniel was sinless. There have only been three people who have ever lived that have been sinless. Adam and Eve for a little bit of time, then they ruined that one. And then Jesus throughout his entire lifetime, have been, had, oh, those were the only three. Daniel sinned. But there was just nothing in terms of the way he went about his business and government, et cetera. He was so faithful. He was working so diligently that they could not find any dirt on him. Wouldn't that be great if we said that today? I can't find any dirt on anybody at any level of politics anywhere in America. I'm just glad I'm not in politics. Found dirt on me all over. An excellent spirit is within this jealousy that takes place. And so then they got this plan. Finally, and I love this. Listen to the way it says it. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaining against him unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. 
We have got to find a way to hurt him because he obeys his God so faithfully. We got to find a way to use his obedience to God against him. Now, I would love to have that uh, uh, said of me. The only way that we're going to get something on this guy is we, we got to go directly to the word of God. And then we got to find out how to write something that goes against the word of God because he's not going to give up on serving God in this way. And so then we got him. That's the plan. So then what do they do? <laughs> they then uh, orchestrate and manipulate the law. Look at this. The high officials, they come by agreement to the king and they said, oh, king, live forever. I just want you to know you're the man. And we think so highly of you. We've come up with a plan that we think would be the most honoring thing to you because you are so wonderful, so good. We want you here forever and ever and ever. Your wisdom, and it just extends, it goes on and on and on. So here's our plan. We think that no other God is as good as you know. It is not worth being talked to. So for just this little 30-day period of time, we think the best thing to do is anyone who prays should only pray to you. Now, great evidence that he did not have a personal walk with Jehovah, God, is he says, okay. Now, did all of them agree? It's possible that they had this conversation while Daniel was there. The scripture doesn't tell us that Daniel was not there when this conversation was taking place. I think it's unlikely because I think Daniel probably would have objected. They just come and they say, all of us are in agreement. This is such a great thing. We should pray to you for 30 days. Oh, by the way, anybody who prays against you, just throw them in the lion's den. Like, does that punishment fit the crime? This is not a slap on the wrist. 30 days, I'm going to slip up. I'm going to pray to some other God. Now, lion, den, mauled. Okay. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house. Now, listen to this. Daniel knows what's in the document. He knows that the document has been signed by the king, by the ruler, the one who has the ability to, to, to make the law go into effect. Others thought up the law. He says yes, he endorses it. He gives his seal on it. Daniel knows that it is now binding and there is no way around it. He understands what is going to happen to him. And so what does he do? He goes to his house and he does the exact same thing that he has been doing over and over and over and over again. Daniel had a habit. And that habit was going to God in prayer. And Daniel's habit, it doesn't have to be the habit of every believer who has ever existed in all time and space, but it's true of him. He takes the words of Solomon quite literally, applies them quite literally, and then he goes and he prays three times a day, and he faces towards Jerusalem. Why is that important? Jerusalem is where the temple of God was. Jerusalem is where the presence of God was. Jerusalem is where the sacrifices were made, where the sins of the people were dealt with, where they were removed from the people they were separated from. Daniel is facing a direction in which God himself had said, this is where I'm going to reside. Daniel, he didn't realize it, but he was facing in a Christ word direction before Christ would hit the scene. He's facing a place where the sins of people are dealt with, and he did it multiple times a day. 
Daniel had no fear for his safety that would cause him to act differently. Now, how old is Daniel at this point? Probably around 80 to 85 years old. Earlier in the book of Daniel, we have this story of these young guys, teenagers, maybe in their 20s, that have now said, we are going to stand when everyone else bows because there's this false God. And if God chooses to take our lives, so be it. Now, Daniel, late in age, has an opportunity to just go ahead and be done with life, maybe. Maybe that was his motivation. No, I don't think so. Daniel right here says, I refuse to give in. Over here, they were standing when everyone else was bowing. Over here, he says, I'm going to bow when everyone else says you have to stand. He was so firm in the conviction that God had placed on his heart that no matter what the consequences were, he was willing to face them. Can I ask you a question? What habits have you developed in your life based on the conviction that God has placed on you? What do you feel that you must do, even if nobody else does it? What compels you because you have heard from the Lord and you're saying, yes, Lord. And so regardless of what the consequences may be, you say, I have to do this because God has impressed this upon my heart. And so I'm going to stay and remain within the will of God as opposed to getting outside of the will of God because this right here is actually the safest place to be in the whole world. It may not be safe for your physical body, but it is the safest place in the world to be is in the will of God. What has God convicted you of? And what are you saying yes, Lord, to? Now, what I like here is that Daniel does this, and he does it quietly. Yeah, the window is open in there, and all likelihood it's open up there because a breeze was necessary to get in. Daniel just goes about and he prays. And so the people hear it. The ones who had manipulated the law, the ones that want to get Daniel, they hear it and then they run off to the king and look at what happens here. <clears throat> then these men came by agreement. They found Daniel making petition and plea before God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, oh, uh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? King answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. King, did you not do that? Yeah, I did that. Then Daniel, the one that you really, really like, the one that you trust so deeply, the one that you have put all the power into his hands, the one that has risen up, that one right there from Judah, he ignores you. No, he doesn't. He just doesn't pray to him. He's faithful to the government. He's blessing the government. He's working faithfully for the government, even though the government does not honor God or acknowledge God. Even Daniel is being faithful where he has been planted. He's not ignoring. He's just not bowing down and worshiping. Instead, he had to save that place for God. So 
The king, when he heard about these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And look at this. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. What this means is that the king now, Darius, is, is, is moved. He's stirred. Perhaps it's only because he knows that this guy is such a stud that if he loses him, then the kingdom is going to go south. Perhaps it's purely selfishly motivated. I tend to think that it's more than that. I tend to think that he had come to develop a genuine affection for Daniel, an old grandpa, a guy well advanced in years who had a tremendous amount of wisdom and insight and discernment who could come along and be helpful in the process. Now, Darius is around 60 years old. Daniel is, is, is around 80, so uh, Darius is in probably in many ways is looking up to the wisdom, and I think he's moved and stirred, and he tries to find a way around the law, but the law was set, and there is no way around the law. These men come by agreement and come to the king. No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. The law is the law, and Daniel is about to feel the weight of the law. So then the king commanded, verse 16, and Daniel was brought and cast in the den of lions, and the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. The king knows that he cannot get around the law. So then he asked for Daniel to be brought in. He is placed into this den. We have every reason to believe it was similar um, uh, to the fiery furnace in which they're looking down upon Daniel, which there would be lions in there. There perhaps was a way to get in there from below, but there would be this space where they could see, and then a stone was placed over the top of this. And the king, Darius, is moved. It goes back to his room, and it says that no diversions were brought to him. What does that mean? It likely means no music, no food, no women, nothing. He, did, he wanted nothing. He could only be consumed with his thoughts of Daniel. I have no idea what actually went on in the mind of the king, but based on his response, we have every reason to believe that this guy was counting down the seconds and then Boom, right at the break of dawn, as soon as a little bit of light comes up, he hops out of his bed and he runs. Listen to this. When at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Do you hear what's going on here? Someone who has been guilty of nothing, the law of man, not the law of God, has condemned him. The law has made it. He cannot get around it in any way. But someone who is innocent is now going to pay the price as if he were someone who was guilty. It says he's thrown into a pit, a stone is laid over it, and then at the break of dawn, someone who is interested in finding out about this person 
sprints towards this grave. And when they get there, the stone is rolled away. And this voice cries out to the innocent man, are you there? (laughs) Then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. His is one of respect, not one of manipulation. May God, my God rather, sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had entrusted his life to God. Oh man, folks. Do you see what's going on? Daniel is doing what many others throughout the scriptures had done. They had entrusted themselves over into the hands of God. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. They bowed the knee of submission over to the sovereignty of God, declared that he is Lord and he has the right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants to his children. And when entrusting themselves over into the hands of God, God sovereignly and powerfully and miraculously protected his children. Now, many before Daniel and many after Daniel would get the ultimate protection by going ahead and dying as martyrs and being ushered into the presence of the Almighty God, which their souls had longed for anyway. No one who ever entrusts themselves wholly, fully over to the person of God ever regrets it. But I know countless individuals who regret playing around with this whole religious thing. Where are you? Have you bowed the knee of submission? Have you said, God, you have every right to do whatever you wish, whenever you wish, however you wish? Are you still trying to do this thing on your own? Do you know what was for me most impressive about Daniel's prayer? He knew what was going to happen to him. Deal Moody said this, real true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. This is all he's doing. God, I don't know how else to live. I've spent years and years and years coming to you because I desperately need you. And if coming to you is gonna cost me my life, then so be it. Then I'll just be with you. Darius is exceedingly glad. He is jacked that this guy was not harmed And then he tends to over-respond, as is the case in virtually every king in Babylon. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Happy Mother's Day. Now notice in here, please notice this. Nowhere is he commanded by God to do this. He just takes his own initiative here, but justice was served. We find it interesting that the leaders of Babylon always are interested in bringing the greatest amount of harm that they can to the enemies. But the kingdom of God is interested in bringing the greatest amount of good it can to the enemies of God. King Darius wrote to all the people and nations and languages that dwell in the earth and peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that 
and all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. To, uh, to be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the, the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. <laughs> After he goes off in his rampage, he then makes this great statement. We have very little reason to believe this guy is an actual follower of Jehovah. He just acknowledges the greatness of God right here. Do you see the pattern that has existed throughout this entire book? First, God places a conviction upon the heart of his children. His children respond in obedience to that conviction. And when they respond, it is noticed by others, not because they're trying to declare it publicly, get it on a microphone, put it on a screen. It's just because they're going about their lives, living the way that God has called them to live. It gets noticed by many. And some find it so compelling that they're just, uh, uh, they can compelled to honor God with their words and even some with their lives as they're changed and, and, and transformed. While others see it and just ignore it. The pattern is God lays a conviction upon his people and then he uses his people to be ministers, to be witnesses within the world, and it brings about transformation in that world. Oh. Yahweh is the living, eternal, endures forever God whose sovereignty will never end. Yahweh is great because he protects, rescues, and saves his followers from harm and is able to perform great miracles. Both signs and wonders in this passage refer specifically to miracles. Hear this. This is from a guy named uh, uh, S.R. Miller. The purpose of miracles is set forth in this passage. Miracles are not wrought by God to show off, but to demonstrate to a lost world that he is the true God and should be honored. Neither was Daniel delivered primarily for his own benefit, but so that the Lord could manifest to a lost king and a lost world his reality and power. I want to close this series with just a couple of things. Randy Pope, when teaching on this uh, years ago, uh, preached a sermon back in the, in the mid-90s that, that gripped my heart on, on the book of Daniel. He had this to say, and I'm giving you straight up his wording right now. You're not going to find it on the screens, um, but write it down if you would like to. In God's will is always the safest place to be, number one, because every creature on earth, including lions, is subject to the sovereign control of God. In God's will is always safest to be, number one, because every creature on earth, even lions, is subject to the sovereign control of God. Number two, because Babylon's greatest conspiracies cannot thwart the sovereign plan of God. No matter how impressive it may be, Babylon's greatest conspiracies cannot thwart the sovereign plan of God. Number three in God's will is always safely number three because those who are in God's will will always be protected and ultimately rewarded. Those in God's will will always be protected and ultimately rewarded. This past weekend, I had the privilege, and I mean that sincerely, of doing a funeral in Atlanta. Now, my 16-year-old son is named Davis. 
He bears the name of this particular family that we have been close to for years and years. Before I was even born, our parents had been friends and Davis, uh, Steve's mom, Marty, and my mom, Betty, have been prayer partners for years and years, decades. And in some of the greatest hours of need in each of our families, these ladies were, were bowing the knee daily for each other, for each other's families. Steve and I connected after about two years after his father had died from uh, brain cancer. And we hit it off. We had known each other from a distance, but, but we hit it off. And um, I was privileged to do his uh, wedding. Uh, he came when the twins were born. And um, to, anyway, there's just uh, a long history. But all throughout this was this woman of faith named Marty. Marty trusted the Lord. And the thing I'm most thankful for is all of the prayers that she gave over the years, not just on my behalf, but on behalf of my kids as well. Up until about three years ago, I could call Marty still and say, Marty, here's a few things that I would ask that you would pray about, and she would do it. When she retired from MTW, she wrote this. Most of all, I can say Jesus led me all the way. How much dearer he is than the day I climbed the curved stairways up to the heavy glass double doors at the old building on Claremont. I know he will be closer and dearer still in the years to come. He will lead me all the way. She goes back in time. When my husband died, I prayed that I would not hang my harp on the willow tree, but that I would learn to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And I'm once more at that same kind of place in my life, though I confess it feels at the moment anyway, much more like a bewildering maze of green gardens than the desert of new widowhood. She then asked this of those at MTW that they would do, would you pray that I will not lay down my harp in selfishness or lack of focus? but learn once again to sing the Lord's song, this time in the new and strange land of retirement. It is, after all, not my song. It's his. I hope that you have been able to see that in the book of Daniel, we just simply have a group of people that chose to trust the Lord. It was not their greatness that caused things to happen. It was the greatness of God. They, we have this story because people were willing to, quote, unquote, test God, not, not in, in, a, in, a, in a challenging way, just saying, I'm willing to walk in obedience and to see what it is that God's going to do. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you that if you have not been living that kind of a life right now, that you have not been getting after it in your pursuit of the person of Jesus, if you're not trying to fight sin, if you're not trying to embrace righteousness, I want to challenge you to, to test God in that way. Walk with him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you bow the knee of submission to him and you pursue him with great regularity through the simple acts of just praying on a daily basis, reading God's word, coming to church on a regular basis, and seeking to find ways that you can just on a very basic level share the good news of what Christ has done with others, I promise you, you will never regret pursuing Christ. But my fear is that many of us watching online, some of us here in this room, my fear is that we will never taste and see how good the Lord actually is. And we will get to the end of our lives and we will not have regrets over places that we didn't visit or things that we didn't buy. We will have great regrets over not even the things that we did. We will have a great regret over, I just didn't trust God more. All oh, my friends, come to Jesus. 
Put your faith and trust in him. Not just for your eternity, but for your daily life. And you will never regret living by conviction.